Welcome back to another episode of The Spooky Rip Jean Mom. My name is Peyton Kennedy, and today we are talking about John Wayne Gacy in Illinois. And I'm very excited to have on my little brother, Corbin. Hi, I'm Corbin. So Corbin and my mom are visiting from Indiana, and he just recently got into true crime. What case was the first one that got you into true crime? The Arizona case of Mark Goodo. My case. Ooh. So we don't have any business, so we're just going to jump right into the case. John was born on March 17th, 1942, making him a Pisces. He was also born two days after um, Grandpa, but like five years before Grandpa. Isn't that weird? Grandpa was born in March. March, March 15th of 1947. John Wayne Gacy was born March 17th of 1942 for some reason i thought you were thinking of february no (laughs) um he was born in chicago illinois his dad was john stanley gacy who um and his birthday was june 20th 1900 um and he died on christmas day of 1969 his did you just say nice (laughs) His mom's name was Marion Elaine Gacy. Her maiden name was Robinson, and she was born on May 4th, 1908, and she died December 6th, 1989. She was 81 years old when she died. Marion was a stay-at-home mom, and John Sr., which in this episode, I'm just going to call him, anytime in this case I talk about John's dad, I'm going to call him Sr. because they are this, they're the same names. Um, but Senior was an alcoholic. He was a World War One veteran. He was an auto repair mechanic after, and he was very much the man that had toxic masculinity. Like, he was mean to John Jr. He was like, he'd call him a sissy and a baby and all sorts of mean names. Uh, Senior's parents moved from Poland, which at the time that they moved to the U.S., it was Prussia. Um, so John Jr. was Polish and Danish, and his original last name in their home country was Gatza or Gaka. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, John Wayne Gacy had three siblings, Joanne and Karen, and John was the middle child. He was close to his mom and siblings, but as we'll get into, he was abused by his dad. So one instance of the abuse told by Marion was that when John was two and a half and Joanne was four, Karen was only three weeks old at this time. All of a sudden, Senior, like they were eating dinner and he just exploded out of nowhere. Um, He threw food into Marion's face and he ended up punching her right in the nose. And as she was like gushing blood, she ran out into the street in their neighborhood and just started screaming and a neighbor had come out and was like what the heck's going on and all of a sudden senior comes out to see what's going on and like why she went out there and the neighbor made senior go back into the house and all three kids are screaming at the time senior walks past all of the kids and then like he grabbed a gun and just left so Marion and the kids went to stay with her sister-in-law, Senior's sister, and a couple of days later, Marion came home while Senior was at work, cleaned up the house, made dinner, and acted like nothing happened. They never spoke about it again. 
Um, and then in 1946, um, John Wayne Gacy said that him and his friend were taken by a 15-year-old girl who had mental disabilities to a like empty field, and she ended up molesting both of them. So that was in 1946 when he was molested by this teenage girl. That made him four years old. Mm. <laughs> I'm not laughing that he was molested. I'm laughing at Corbin's reaction to these things. So then around six years old, this is when, like, you could kind of pinpoint where his mental stability was because um, around six years old, he has started to steal his mom's underwear. Ew. So in between stealing his mom's underwear in 1949, Senior would just call him stupid and dumb. He beat John one time with a leather belt for taking apart a car engine. Um, he called him a sissy, a mama's boy, and even told him he was going to grow up to be queer. John, though, later on said that no matter what, he still loved his dad. He just felt like he was never good enough for his dad. Um, and then in 1949, John and his friend were caught fondling a young girl, and his dad whipped him with a razor strop. And everywhere I, wherever I found it, and it wasn't strap, it was strope, S-T-R-O-P. And I was like, what the heck is a strope? So it's a flexible strip of leather or soft material used to straighten or polish the blade of a straight razor, a knife, a woodworking tool, such as a chisel. So it's like worse than a belt. Yes. Dang. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then John was molested by a family friend in a truck. And he was like a carpenter or something like that. And he like would come over, would convince John, like, Sr. to let John Jr. do the, like, do jobs with him, and then he would rape him in the truck. But then John Jr. was so afraid of Sr. and getting in trouble with him about it that he just never told him what happened. It's not very nice. No. No. And I always tell people to feel bad for, like, the kid, but don't feel bad for the adult and the killer. And I, I do feel bad for him on these instances because it's truly sad. So now he's 11 years old and he starts her having heart issues and blacking out. So they take him to the hospital and while in the hospital, Senior keeps calling him a baby. He keeps saying he's doing this for attention. And so uh, he was diagnosed with just a very generic congenital heart condition. They like could not pinpoint what was going on. So because of this, he couldn't do sports because he couldn't get his heart rate up. So um, he started to become overweight. And at this point, he his dad is calling him a sissy and a girl and other kids started bullying him for everything. And then in 1957, his appendix burst. They also found a blood clot in his brain, um, which was fixable. It caused him to miss a lot of school. But while he was in the hospital, after getting brain surgery and having his appendix taken out, his dad told him that he was a sissy and he was faking all of this for attention. And then, um, because of all this, he dropped out of high school, which just furthered Senior to call him stupid and dumb even more. So in between all of these health problems he had going on, when he was 10 years old, they all moved into a new house. And this house was your typical, like, in the neighborhood house, except it had a huge basement. 
that became Senior's Man Cave. And no one knew what was down there. No one was not allowed to go down there. At one point, they said that their lights had gone off, like a breaker had turned off or something, and they needed to go down in the basement to flip the breaker switch, and they had to wait until Senior got home from work so he could go down there and do it. If dinner was ready at 5 o'clock, but Senior wasn't ready to come up, like, Marion couldn't yell down for Senior. You had to wait for Senior to come back up. So Senior could come up for dinner at, like, 7 p.m., and all the food's cold, and they're all just sitting there waiting for him to come up without food being touched. So he was very selfish. Yeah, he was very controlling, for sure. And then, when he was 12 years old, his mom caught him with all of her underwear. Because at some point, she was like, where's all my underwear going? And she went into his room and found it all. And do you know what she made him did? Made do you know what do? <laughs> made him do when she found it? What? She made him wear it. She made him wear her underwear instead of his own. Like, just the underwear? Yeah. But this was, like, the 50s, so she probably wasn't walking around in, like, a thong. Like, they were, like, granny panty-type deals. Uh, but she made him wear her underwear. That's weird. Very weird. And kind of disturbing. So then in 1957, after he's getting, like, his the, his brain surgery and the appendix surgery, Senior came up from the drunk, up from the drunk, up from the basement drunk, um... And for no reason at all, he just started belittling and hitting John. And Marion tried to intervene, but he just, like, pushed her away. And John said in any of the times he did this, he never fought back against his dad. And then one of John's friends from back then had told, like, press and other people that there were several instances when Senior would just beat John without any... uh, Provocation. I said it right. I was having a hard time when I was writing it, saying that word. Uh, so I had mentioned that John had dropped out of high school and Senior kept calling him stupid and stuff like that. Well, right after he dropped out of high school, Senior bought John a car, but, like, was not nice about it. It was so he could look for jobs and things like that. But um, he ended up taking away the keys for, like, anything, even... Whatever he thought John was doing, it was disobeying him. He'd take the keys away. So even though John made all the payments onto the car. So um, in 1962, he got a spare key to the car without his dad's knowledge. But then when he would just take the car after Senior took away the keys and Senior caught on to what was happening, he would take the distributor cap out, which I read up about only thing I really got was that it's linked to, like, the ignition, so he couldn't physically start the car. Like, it's not a battery. It's something in the car. Um, and when, like, three days after he took the distributor cap out, he put it back in. And in 1962, what's his name? John Wayne Gacy uh, moved to Vegas with no money and no job, and he ended up getting involved in politics and working for the Democratic Party as an assistant precinct captain. So the people that were also working with him in the Democratic Party thing um, said he was a smooth talker, he was charming, he was well-liked, they all believed he could have gone far, um, they said he could grab and hold the room's attention, And his dad made fun of him for being successful in, you know, 
in the Democratic Party. And so at one point while he was in Vegas, he got sick and had to go to the hospital and the bill was $36. He still really didn't have much money. Um, so he convinced the hospital to give him a job as an ambulance driver. But to be an ambulance driver, you need to have your high school diploma at, like, I don't, I think that's still true now. Um, and he worked there for like a couple weeks and then they found out that he didn't have his high school diploma. So he got fired. So then, which he did get his bill paid off, his hospital bill paid off, but then he worked for a mortuary. Do you know what a mortuary is? Is it like where they put bodies? Yeah, like it's what they call a morgue. Like, yeah. So yeah. the hospitals and stuff. Um, he was an attendant there, and they had him sleeping on a cot in front of the embalming room, and he worked there for three months. Now, a couple days before he quit there, he ended up going in and fondled a he fondled a dead like teenage boy. Um, and then he, that's when he realized he was attracted to teenage boys. He confessed all of this, by the way. And after this, he immediately called his mom, did not tell her what happened, but did ask if he could move back home and if Senior would let him. Senior said okay, but he had to get a job and, in quotes, be a man, end quotes. So then... He went to the Northwestern Business College, where he graduated there in 1963. He became a management trainee position at Nunn Bush Shoe Company, and he did extremely well there. Very, very well. Um, in 1964, he ended up transferring to another location um, where he was a manager, and he ended up uh, meeting Marilyn Myers, and they got engaged in March of 1964. He also said this is where he had his second homosexual experience. So while he was doing all this, he also joined the JCs, which I do have what they are on here because in my notes, because I had no idea what the JCs were until I read up, up on this. They're basically a leadership training and civic organizations for people 18 to 40 years old. They're just kind of like a big network. Um, and he became the key man, and then at some point, he also became the vice president. Um, he got an award for being the third most outstanding JC in Illinois. That has nothing to do with anything. They just, it does have something to do with something in the future, um, but the JCs really are just like a group. They have nothing to do with really, truly really anything in life. Um, in September of 1964, he married Marilyn, which Marilyn's dad owned, like, a bunch of KC KFC franchises, and his name was Fred, and Fred offered John three KFCs in Waterloo, Iowa, and the only thing they had to do was move into Marilyn's old house, which was completely vacant, and at KFC, he would make $15,000 per year. But again, this was 1964, so today that was $134,550 a year. Yeah. Um, so they moved there, they moved into our house, and he ended up joining the Waterloo's JCs. So he just transferred JC branches. Um, and 
out there they could form their own committee committees so he started a committee to basically clean up the town they'd go around and they'd pick up all the litter and stuff like that and that's where he became vp and he received an outstanding vp award and he also got on the board for jc's um but the waterloo jc's were kind of like the picturesque ones were like oh look how amazing like what they're doing for the community but the background of them are terrible so they would wife swap and he got Marilyn in his like swinging and stuff like that um they would be involved with prostitution pornography and drug use Um, and John was involved with the recruitments, so he would, like, hold these wild rager parties for potential members, and then he would show them illegal porn, and then they would all have orgies with sex workers. And then he'd use it as blackmail, like, hey, I'm going to show you got your wives this if you don't join. And then they would join because they didn't want their wives to know. That's a dirty move. That's what I'm saying. Um, in 1967... Him and Marilyn welcomed a baby boy, and then in 1968, they welcomed a baby girl, and John told people that at this point, he felt like his life was perfect. So at some point, I'm not sure what the year was, but John's parents came to visit, and Senior actually told John that he was proud of him, and told him that he had been wrong about everything, like wrong that he was going to grow up queer, things like that, and he even apologized. Um, but this is when John kind of keep his feelings towards teenage boys away. And so he ended up having a lot of workers be teenage boys at KFC. Um, and he became like overly confident while, while working with them. The, he had so many teenage boys working there that people were like questioning why there were so many. Like customers were like, why are there so many teenage boys here? Um, so he made everyone call him the Colonel and then he turned his basement, like his basement that his dad had, his current basement into a place for teenage boys to hang out. He would have the like drugs there, he would have alcohol and he would provide it to them so they could get high and drunk. And so in August of 1967, um, we get Donald. And I didn't include his last name. If you look, you can look it up, but he's a minor. So all the minors that I have, I haven't put in their last name because at the time they were minors when this happened and some of them could have changed their names to not be associated. So I just didn't add them. Um, but Donald was hired to do jobs around John's house and he was actually the son of another JC member in Waterloo. He promised John promised him that he could watch porn and then he got him drunk and sexually assaulted him and while sexually assaulting him he said and I quote um you have to have sex with a man before you start having sex with a woman end quote and then after this he brought more and more teenage boys down and sexually assaulted them he told them it was scientific research and he gave them $50 to participate uh and then in March of 1968 Donald um, finally told his dad, and his dad went to police immediately. So then another boy at that time in March went up to police as well. His name was Edward, and he was 16 years old. And he told police that John Wayne Gacy had sexually assaulted him too. 
At this point, John's arrested for sodomy and attempted assault on a 16-year-old. And he, all he did was deny, and he said that there was consent, and he set up, um, slash, and that he was set up to not get president because of the other JC member, and he demanded a polygraph. Now, back then, the age of consent is 16, and it's not like he's a teacher or, like, anything really to this kid besides, a, like, friend of the dad's. Uh -huh. So, on August of 1968, he hired um, a guy named Russell Schroeder. He was 18 years old, and he paid him $300 to physically assault Donald. Uh, he lured Donald into the woods. He then sprayed him in the face with pepper spray and then beat him. Well, Donald got away, and he immediately went to police and told them who Russell was. And at first... Like, very quickly, Russell um, denied having any involvement. And then, like, switched like that. He admitted that um, he did do it, but that John had sent him to beat Donald. So, police arrested John again for assault and intimidation for Donald. And on September 12th, John was ordered to a psych evaluation at the um, psychiatric hospital of the University of Iowa, and he was examined for 17 days. Two docs examined him, and they decided that he had antisocial personality disorder, which is now sociopathy and psycho psychopathy, uh, and that he wouldn't benefit from any therapy or medical treatment, and his behavior pattern was likely to bring him into um, repeated conflict with society. Both doctors, though, did say he was competent to stand trial. So on November 7th, 1968, John did plead guilty um, for one count of sodomy, but not guilty on any other charges, and he was sentenced to 10 years. In jail, he was a model inmate. He became head cook. He joined the JC chapter, um, and the membership when he joined was 50, and... While he was there, it got all the way up to 650, less than 18 months of him being a part of the JCs. And he even got the inmates an increase of pay and had projects to improve the conditions for inmates. So he like he could have done a lot of good things if he had not done the things that he had done. Uh, summer of 1969, he got a miniature golf installed into the prison. And then in June of 1969, he was denied parole. And then November of 1969, he got his high school diploma. And this was to prep for like his next hearing for the parole board. On um, December 25th, 1969, this is when Senior died. And that was from chorosis of the liver, um, which is because he was a drinker. It was just like... Meant to be... No, it was just like a diseased liver. That's what he died from. Um, but yeah, meant to be. But apparently John didn't handle it well. He collapsed on the floor and just sobbed. And then um, he requested for supervised compassionate leave so he could attend his dad's funeral, which he was denied. So I don't know about you, but you're probably wondering, where the heck is Marilyn, his wife? Like, what does she think of all this? Well, she divorced him. No um, doubt. But when she divorced him and John uh, 
got released in 1971, he said that her and the kids were dead to him. So she, I don't know what the kids did, but he never went back to take care of his two kids that he had with her. And then October of 1971, he was released and put onto one-year probation. He went back to Chicago, but part of his probation was that he had to live with his mom. Um, and so he became a line cook, and then he worked for a construction construction contractor where he saved his money and bought a home in uh, De Plain, Iowa. And him and his mom both moved in there because, again, still part of his probation that she'd be with him. In February 12th of 1971, he was charged with sexual assault on a teenage boy, and he had lured him into John's car at the Chicago Greyhound bus terminal, and John drove him to the house. He attempted to force the boy into having sex with him, um, and the boy did go to the police about it, obviously because he was charged with it, but the case was dismissed because the boy never showed up to court. So they just, which was probably because he's scared, but he got his charges dismissed and somehow this did not get back to John's probation officer. So he got, he went to court. Probation officer did not know about any of it until after the one year of probation. So there was nothing that they could do. So what would have normally put you back to jail? didn't so you got to get out of jail for you yes he did so on june 22nd 1971 he was arrested again and charged with aggravated sexual battery and uh, reckless conduct the young boy said that john flashed a sheriff badge lured him into his car and made the boy perform oral sex but the charges were dropped because the boy tried to blackmail john so he's just getting all these passes why would he try to blackmail him even if he would have won in court anyway because he might not have won in court you never know so he blackmailed him for probably for money uh. so then in july of 1972 like july 1st to be exact he married a girl named carol hoff who um some places I saw said that they dated in high school. Others said that they were just friends in high school. Uh, but they, you know, got married, whatever. And she knew about his arrest on those teenage boys. And married him anyway. And not only did she marry him, but she had two young daughters from a previous marriage that she had move into the house with John and her. It's kind of dumb. Yes. Yes. And so when she moved in, um, John's mom shortly moved out, like before they got married and everything, because his parole was up. So she didn't have to live with him anymore. Uh, And then in 1972, he bought a ranch house. It's 8213 West Somerdale Avenue. Um, And this is where he has buried all 33 of the bodies that he's been convicted of killing um but he was active in the local community around that place he had helped neighbors he had loaned um construction tools because he had also started his own business back in 1971 that i'll get to in a little bit um but then he also plowed snow free of charge for his neighbors 
And between 1974 and 1978, he actually hosted parties. Um, normally, there'd be around 400 people, and that included politicians. And then, so now in 1971, he started his construction company, which was PDM Construction. He was able to hire teen boys for cheap and longer because um, it helped him get around them. And he would also assault them during the hiring process. Uh, at first, it was part-time. He was still working um, as a line cook. And he was really just painting, decorating, and doing a little bit of maintenance around. Um, and he would work there at night after a full day of cooking. And um, part of it would be like sign writing, pouring concrete, redecorating. But then as he got bigger and he got more business, it expanded into interior designing, remodeling, installation, assembly, and landscaping. So in 1975, PDM had grown so much that he took it over full time and he was doing 16 hour days. And then in 1977, he became a supervisor for PE Systems, um, which were like a business, like construction company that remodeled drugstores. Um, usually when he worked with PE, PE and he was doing his PDM construction, he had four projects um, going on at one time that had him going to other states. And by 1978, PDM's revenue was $200,000. Um, and then at this time is when he started to dress up as Pogo the Clown. Now, he's not a professional clown. Clown college is apparently real in my research that I did. Um, because they teach you certain things, like what to do with your makeup. Like, I learned that if you notice in the pictures, all of his makeup, he has, like, sharp edges, like, with his smile and things like that. Like, he paints his face white, and then he does outlines in um, red. And in clown college, they teach you to make it all rounded, like a rounded smile type deal because the roundness is more friendly and less scary towards kids. But John would make his pointed and like squared off, which is more frightening towards kids. Um, so I'm going to get into the first two murders. There is going to be a part two, um, but I wanted to at least get the first two murders in this part one episode. So, um, we're kind of taking it back. I know we got into 1978, but we're going to go back to 1972, January 2nd to be exact, because Timothy McCoy, um, who was 16 years old, went missing from the Greyhound bus stop. He was sleeping at the bus station and he was traveling back from visiting his dad. Uh, John acted like he really wanted to help. He offered him a place to stay. He was like, hey... You should not be sleeping out here. It's too cold. Um, and then he did tell him he'd bring him back in the morning. And while they were driving home, like back to John's house, John took him on a tour around Chicago. They got to the house. John showed him to the room or the couch or whatever. He slept there. But then in the morning, this is all John's account, by the way. John said he woke up and Timothy was standing in his bedroom doorway with a knife. And at this point, John feels threatened. So he jumps from bed and they said that he like, he said that 
Timothy like threw up his arms like he was surrendering but when he threw up his arm he accidentally cut John on his forearm and so John got the knife from him and ended up banging Timothy's head against the wall he then kicked Timothy against the wardrobe Timothy out of self-defense kicked John in the stomach but that pissed John off so he grabbed Timothy and he just kept stabbing him now, this is the part that really kind of broke my heart when I was reading all about it. Um, John then said that after he was done stabbing Timothy, he went to wash off the knife. And when he looked over, he saw that the table had been set for two and that there were eggs on the counter. He saw bacon on the table cooked and he realized that Timothy had made him breakfast. So he wasn't trying to hurt him or anything? No, he just, like, didn't realize he still had the knife in his hand and walked in to wake John up to, like, thank him for, ma like, letting him stay there with breakfast. Um, and so, at that point, John said he felt totally drained, and he heard Timothy gurgling, and that made him have the best orgasm of his life. Yeah. No. <laughs> Isn't that so gross and so sad? Like, that poor kid just made him breakfast. And then he killed him, felt bad, and drained. Like, I'm sorry you feel drained. Not really. And then orgasm to his gurgling. It's weird. It's disgusting. I don't like that. I don't either. And then... In quotes, John said, that's when I realized that death was the ultimate thrill. Yeah. So at this point, he puts Timothy in the crawl space. And then we're just going to kind of fast forward again. You know, a little while later, he married Carol. Um, business took off, things like that. But his second murder took place in 1974 in January. Um... Uh, the remains have been unidentified. He is between the ages of 14 and 18. He had brown hair and there was a, like he was wearing a silver ring on his finger. So a lot of places that I looked at speculated he could have been 18 and married. Um, and then John said that he strangled him. He had placed him in the closet for a while. And then, uh, he had to put him in the crawl space because he started decomposing. And when you decompose, like, you leak fluids. And that started leaking onto the carpet and staining the carpet in his um, closet. At, so then he stuffed him, like, his mouth with underwear and socks to prevent leakage, like, in his further, vi like, future victims. And he buried this unidentified boy... 15 feet from the barbecue pit like where he would like held parties at and that's where we're gonna stop for today yeah it's very gross in part two um we do go into more of the murders kids who went missing um things like that and if I can get part two's research all the way done 
tonight. We may be able to record tomorrow and get it posted. Uh, or like tomorrow evening get it recorded. I don't know. But that is part one of John Wayne Gacy. What do you think? It was very fascinating. <laughs> Corbin's very nervous about being in front of the microphone. Yep. <laughs> So anytime I ask him a question, I have to pause and then ask him so he can get his thoughts together. I I think I don't want to like romanticize the like murderers. Like some people romanticize Ted Bundy. They're like, well, he was so cute. Like it's hard to believe he did it because he was cute. And so I don't want to like romanticize, but I always have a fascination with like why is their brain different than ours? Like why do they? Why do they try to justify why they kill people, you Probably know? Probably because of the past. Well, like, a lot of times it, I've noticed it's nature over nurture, or nurture versus nature type deal. Like, they, like, I fully believe his dad had something to do with why he's so, why John Wayne Gacy was so fucked up. But it always baffles me, like, why, why did one day he think it was okay to just kill people? You know what I mean? Like, what happened with his brain that's different than mine that made him a, a murderer, a serial killer? Probably because everyone's brain is different, so probably... Yeah, but you don't think it to like, kill? Yeah, because everyone has, like, this, like, trigger thing that they do But, something. like, what turned on in his mind that doesn't turn on in ours that made him want to kill? That's what fascinates me, like, the serial killer's mind. Yeah. Well, we will be back with part two. Thanks for tuning in. Love you. Bye. Bye.